Welcome to the Broad Corb Report. We're looking at the end of January, moving into February, and we're going to talk about some really great topics today. Of course, with our weekly hosts, Michael Broadcorb and the delightful Becky Allery. And there's a lot to talk about. So let's kind of go through a rundown of what you are going to hear on this week's show. Seems like the story that just won't stop giving, and that is the discovery of documents. We're going to talk a little bit about Mike Murphy and some of his future plans. And, of course... The Wall's release of his budget plan and this interesting video that came out regarding Pelosi. So let's kick this off. And oh, yeah, we've got a great guest this week, too. We have Harry Niska, who's going to be joining us. But you guys, let's start and kick this off with the discovery of these Pence documents. I mean, every single week we're finding out more and more and more. And we always say, are we going to bring this up again? And here we are. Third week in the row, and the discovery of former Vice President Pence and his classified documents. What say you? We've discussed this at length, and on our last, on our episode last week, we discussed whether we would be coming back this week, and there would be updates in the story. That was related to Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump. So technically, there are no, there are no updates related to them. But former Vice President Mike Pence said on Friday that he had. That he had previously that he had been previously unaware, classified documents went to his home in Indiana. But mistakes were made, and he takes full responsibility. Now, what I will say to you about Pence's comment, and he commented at an event at Florida International University that he thought, quote, out of abundance of caution, it would be appropriate for his personal rec- to review his personal records. The statement made by Pence, and people can look at it online, was by far, I think the most responsible statement from an elected official or former elected official about documents being found. And so I don't think we have to spend too much time on it in this week, but there weren't technically updates related to Trump and Biden, but there are related to Pence. What I find, what I thought very interesting, and I'd like to ask the communication pro, Becky Allery, about this, is Pence is rumored to be potentially getting in the presidential race. There's talk of it. Trump is already in. I thought Pence's messaging was complete concise and responsible about this your i'd like to get your perspective on that yeah i think he learned from both trump and biden's mistakes on this he was not combative he was forthcoming he directed his team to work with the national archives and department of justice on this he said we acted above politics and put national interests first and he took responsibility i mean he did the things that both biden failed to do and trump failed to do in their responses to this um and and i think i think it came out great i mean i think this is he they they took the notes from the public and the press and and all the outrage and i thought i thought his reaction was great are you surprised i mean do you, do you it seems to me that pence i mean as good as you can get for having classified documents at your house he touched off all of the points and i think that that was a conscious decision is is there a benefit he has by seeing it being kind of ham-fisted before he comments, does he benefit from that in such sense? For sure. I mean, again, I don't think he necessarily. I don't think there is a requirement that all of these former vice presidents and former presidents have to go through their personal files. I think again, he he chose to do that. Um, I think that's a great move. But I think he totally is able to take advantage of of what happened and, and the failures in the other two situations. Just one quick question for both of you guys as we move on to the next topic. Does it really matter? It sounds to me like, you know, they get, move out of their office. They're throwing items in a big uh, briefcase and they throw them in the garage like a lot of us do when we move on to the next job. I think the public at large is kind of this is becoming a non-issue issue, and I'd just be interested to hear from you two that are pros in the political field. Do you think it really matters? Uh, I think it matters when the Federal Bureau of Investigation raids your home uh, and it goes through stuff. Yes, I think it matters. I think as long as you – look, I, I, think it's, I don't think it's good that classified documents keep being found or being located where they shouldn't be. That being said, I think it's fair to say I – th- I agree with Becky that Pence's reaction – is probably the most responsible. Um, I do think there's a difference between the three cases. I think the fact that, by all accounts, based on the public record, that Trump's involvement with classified documents led to an FBI raid, led to a standoff with the National Archives, led to a standoff with the Justice Department, in the legal sense, is makes it much more serious. And so I think that could be the potential. But from a messaging standpoint, I think Pence is still ahead. 
I, I agree. And I also think, you know, with some of these folks, maybe like Trump and Pence in particular, and, and Biden, if Biden's going to run for another term, um, it is kind of, you know, are they holding on to those for, for future use? What is the reasoning behind that? Um, and should this continue to be a thing? Are, I mean, to go completely, you know, black helicopter a little bit, would some of our enemies or would some bad actors out there be assuming that classified documents are easily accessible at a private residence that doesn't have the security or situations, you know, surrounding them that they could, you know, obtain access to. I, I don't know. Well, it seems like systems and procedures certainly need to be put in place so this doesn't happen in the future. All right, let's move on, guys. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this new announcement, this recent announcement that, that we have heard about former mayor... Mike Murphy of Lexington, Minnesota, and his plans to run for Congress. Uh, this is really frustrating, and I'm an event for a second. Uh, I'm an event. Love it. This really, really angers me. Mike Murphy ran for governor um, on the Republican side, ran for governor the last cycle. He is the former mayor of Lexington. Uh, Lexington is not in Minnesota's second congressional district. Um, there, interesting little tidbit. You do not have to be a resident of the district to represent it in Congress. You only have to be a resident of the state. Really? So I never knew that. I live in Egan, Minnesota. I could legally run for Congress in any of Minnesota's eight congressional districts. And as long as I legally reside in the state, I can represent them in Congress. Mike Murphy um, ran for governor, did not succeed, ran for re-election for mayor, lost his re-election for mayor. Um, there is a lot of sizable frustration inside Republican circles about Mike Murphy, his role at the 2022 state convention, his anointment of Scott Jensen to be the Republican candidate for governor, who was an absolute train wreck. The idea that Mike Murphy, living in Lexington, Minnesota, outside Minnesota's 2nd Congressional District, is going to successfully run for Congress in my backyard is absolutely not going to happen. And I have never been more upset about a Republican candidate running before the name Mike Murphy. This is exactly why Republicans can have, can't have nice things in the state. Mike Murphy is, was a gadfly, low-level candidate for governor, and now he thinks he's going to run for Congress in Minnesota's congressional district. Republicans in Minnesota have to run better campaigns. The Republicans in the 2nd Congressional District need to do everything they can to not embrace Murphy's candidacy, to make sure he stays out of the 2nd Congressional District. Uh, these campaigns that have been set up over the last few cycles have turned from winning campaign operations to professional grifts. Grifts where these campaigns are raising money and spending money under the illusion of running for office. There's absolutely no reason for me to believe that Mike Murphy operation will be anything else other than that. There's no credible argument that could be made that the former mayor of Lexington, who lives 20, 30 some miles away from the, the boundaries of the 2nd Congressional District, would resonate at all with the voters of the second. He shouldn't run. He should end his campaign. He should withdraw his filing because if he comes to the second congressional district and thinks he's going to have an easy go at it, he's not. All right. Becky Ellery, I think we know how Michael stands. I'd be interested in your co thoughts and comments. Well, I, I don't think my co-host there minced any words oh. of how he really feels about things. Um, so I have a little experience in the 2nd Congressional District. I did uh, a couple of years ago uh, manage Jason Lewis's re-election bid in the 2nd District. Um, the district has changed significantly since that with redistricting um, since the 2018 election. But it's, it's for the last two, three cycles, has been one of the top competitive races in in the country um even as an incumbent congressman jason lewis spent um you know we spent a couple million dollars in that race and to be able to spend a couple million dollars you need to raise a couple million dollars and and for somebody um who just recently lost their re-election bid in lexington minnesota i find the ability to raise two four five million dollars in that race um, going to be quite a heavy lift there. So, uh, you know, that is definitely going to be an interesting thing to see. Um, I, I share Michael's disappointment in, in how the gubernatorial endorsement went down with Mike Murphy's um, playing, or, you know, role that he played in that. I, I think that there's a, a very large possibility that had he had not made some statements that I think he has retra since retracted um, 
if he didn't make those at the convention, it's very possible that Kendall Qualls would have been our, our gubernatorial candidate and I think uh, could have seen a very different election result here in the state of Minnesota. Um, but one thing I do have to say, you know, Michael, you are from the second congressional or live in the second congressional district. Um, you know, it all comes down to that endorsement. Do you think, uh, you know, let's say let's let's I, I, we haven't heard anybody else coming out. Tyler Kistner did run the last two cycles. Let's, you know, for the sake of this argument, say Kistner is not running again. Mike Murphy and a couple other new candidates are going to run again. Do you think that he has the possibility to be successful being that he did, you know, largely uh, make a, a run for things at the at the state convention? Yeah, the, unfortunately, you're probably right. I mean, he had, he had a very strong support in the second congressional district. And I think in the interest of fairness, Lewis lived a little bit outside of the second congressional district. That, th- that wasn't a problem, though. He was Woodbury. It was just literally a stone's throw outside the district. And formally was part Yes, of it. absolutely. So I, I never yep. had a concern. I never had a concern with it. Murphy, what I, I think the optics here, I think one of the decisions is it's a high-dollar congressional race. You can raise and you can spend a lot of money. He had a good presence at the second congressional district at the state convention. So... There's a difference, though, between being endorsed. So to answer your question, yes, he could probably do well in an endorsing convention, but could he win? And you've, you've really hit on the good point, which is Republicans need to stop, at least from my perspective, Republicans need to stop focusing as much on the endorsement and think about can he win. Mike Murphy's not going to win the second congressional district race for Congress. Um, he doesn't live there. Doesn't, I don't think, connect in any sizable way with the district being a former elected official. Plus, I would argue the positions that Murphy took during the endorsement process, will make him incredibly unelectable in Minnesota's second congressional district. He served a variety of red meat without any sense of electoral accountability to the activists. And, and it's difficult for me to understand from an election standpoint, not how you win the endorsement, because you're spot on about that, but how do you win the election? And I think what Republicans need to start doing in this state is asking, can these candidates win the election? And I'm telling you, Mike Murphy is DOA in Minnesota's second congressional district from an electoral standpoint. You agree with that, Becky? Uh, y- yes, and and I will, and this is where I was going to go to. Um, you know, you often hear hear my co-host say nice thing about Democrats a lot more than me, but I will say. Angie Craig has been a rather, um, you know, has has stayed in the middle. She hasn't been, you know, tied up in a lot of the far left, um, any antics in Congress. You know, she's kind of kept her head down, worked hard, um, taken the Dean Phillips approach a little bit, maybe the former Walls approach in in some of that. Um, And so I don't know, you know, I don't know that the second district feels completely outraged with their, their representation at the time that would make them some of those middle of the road voters that they need swing swing back to the right um, where they need because there are a lot of swing voters there. Do you think that Mike Murphy is interested in running in this race because of the potential money the campaign could raise or does he think he can win the seat? I think, I guess, I, I would say that he's in it because he thinks he can win the seat. And in your experience, do you think a candidate like Mike Murphy is going to appeal to the vast voters of the second congressional district in a way? I I. I I have yet to see that. Do you think that the NRCC and others would view him uh, as a as a as a as a good candidate to run? Um, no, I I think that they're probably looking for for a little bit more from a candidate, a little bit more, yeah, just just a little bit more robust candidate that's going to appeal to suburban women. Um, it, it largely is who they need to su- appeal to. In your experience, on all things being equal, on paper, just. On paper, who would be a good? Not you don't have to name names, but what type of a candidate do you think would really resonate well in the second congressional district on the Republican side? It's a good question, man. Um, you know, I think somebody that's going to you got to talk about some of those social issues, but in a more pragmatic approach. I don't think any swinging far right is going to win win any votes over there. The public safety, you got to, I, we got to win back those suburban women. I think this is not just in the second. I think it is in the third and in some of these House and Senate seats as well. But those suburban women is really who we need to appeal for. Obviously, um, I think a lot of the Republican messaging has been failing over the last couple cycles. And so it's somebody who can, can tap into that and, and what that really looks like is yet to be seen. One last point I want to make, which is that Murphy is a former elected official outside of the district. His wife was just elected to the school board uh, in Centennial. And so it would be quite unusual to have your, 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 your household divided in terms of people occupying different political offices from different congressional districts running at the same time. And so I think there's a number of reasons why uh, I think 
he wouldn't be a good candidate. Uh, and and, and my, my angst and frustration is about my desire to want to see Republicans have some bit of nice things in this state at some point. And, and, and having Mike Murphy coming into my neighborhood, into the 2nd Congressional District, is not a, we're not off to a good start in 2023. I just got to say one thing to, to any of our listeners. We talked a little bit about the endorsement again today. We've talked about it in the past. Um, I know there's a lot of conversations in the Republican circles of whether we should go away with the, do away with the endorsement, whether we should continue to embrace it. Um, if anybody has any strong thoughts, I'd, I'd love to hear tweets. Uh, DMs are open. You know, send us some, some comments about that. And uh, maybe in a future episode, we really get into the nuts and bolts of whether that's something that's going to go away soon. That would certainly be interesting to hear. Interesting to hear. And uh, time will tell what happens with Mike Murphy and his bid for uh, this seat. So and uh, wondering if if Michael will stay in <laughs> in the district if Mike Murphy... I'm not leaving. <clears throat> You're I'm not leaving. I'm staying in the 2nd Congressional District. All right. Well, that'll be interesting to see what happens here. So stay tuned. I'm sure we'll be uh, touching the subject once again. Okay. Now, we have to talk about a video that came out today. Uh, pretty interesting. Pretty interesting. I'm looking for both of your reaction. A video came out from an interview that Pelosi's attacker did from prison. Becky, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so over the weekend, um, the video from the attack, you know, this this gentleman broke into the Pelosi home, private residence, um, attacked Paul Pelosi with a hammer, said that he was trying to get, uh, I believe, get and kidnap and, and uh, Nancy Pelosi, um, did an interview from prison. And uh, what is most shocking is he starts off, and I'm going to say this quote, he starts off saying, I want to apologize to everyone. I messed up. What I did was really bad. So you kind of listen to this, hear this, and think maybe, you know, he is remorseful about this attack and, and, you know, attempted murder on Paul Pelosi. He goes on to say, I'm so sorry I didn't get more of them. It's my fault. No one else is to blame. I should have come better prepared. Whoa. Wow. Well, that is horrific. Horrific. Um, I saw the video. I've not seen that. Uh, I will look for that. Um, That's the stuff of nightmares. But I did see the video that came out that was released from law enforcement about the attack in his home. And it was interesting. Uh, that came that happened uh, near the end of October of 2022. We're just getting the, the, footage, the footage out right now. There were a number of people who believed that there was a th- conspiracy theory about what was going on, that, that the individual in his home that attacked Paul Pelosi was there for some other reason, which I don't want to dignify. But there's a number of conspiracies that came out of that. And I think this video clearly put to bed any uh, narrative that others would want to portray about the events of that night. It was horrific to see. It was a violent attack. The former speaker has said that she is not going to watch the video. But anyone, uh, there are a number of, I think, questions about security, not about the details of that event that I'm as concerned about, uh, about security and how he was able to gain access. And I do believe that uh, homes of elected officials, particularly the Speaker of the House, who their placement in, in, in the succession of the Office of the Presidency is, is up there very high, there needs to be more done. But this was a violent attack on Paul Pelosi. This is clearly a deranged individual who was involved in it. I'm glad that he is recovering. I, I completely understand why uh, the former Speaker would not want to watch it. It was um, frightening to watch. Absolutely. But shame oh on gosh. those, on, shame on anyone. Democrat, Republican, whoever they were, who trafficked in misinformation about this attack. This was a horrific home invasion. Uh, Paul Pelosi is lucky to be alive. Uh, this is clearly a deranged no attacker. And this should be a lesson for, I think, people to slow down on social media. Very very well said, Michael. I felt the exact same way after I saw that. And people I know personally that we both, <laughs> the three of us know, you know, really had this whole conspiracy theory all uh, all made up and uh, really believe there was something more behind it. And I'm right there with you. Man, when you see that attack, that was just frightening. Absolutely. You know, it, I, I completely agree. The security, I mean, Nancy Pelosi is, what, third in line as the Speaker of the House? And, yeah, she was, and yep. So that's just wild that this gentleman came, looked in the windows, left, came back with a backpack, broke in through a window, and was able, I mean, had she been home... I, I don't even it, it's just horrific I mean obviously I'm not a Democrat I'm not a Nancy Pelosi fan but never do we want any attack on, on any person of, of either side of the aisle here and this is just really alarming and, and yeah super grateful that that he's um, okay in recovering 
Well, I, I can't agree with either one, either one of you more, man. This is a frightening video to watch. If you haven't seen it, just be sure to go out there and take a look. All right, the talk of the week that we need to chat about here, and it is Walsh released his budget plan. I'm going to throw it to the floor. Let's start with you, Becky. What are your thoughts? It is large. I mean, wow. So uh, I believe the last biennium was about $52 billion. This one is $65.2 billion. Um, he's raising it by 26%. It is a 26% increase, and that is while we have a, a $17 billion um, surplus, and he's still raising taxes. I mean, it's just you, you can't make this stuff up. Um, what I, 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 I really want to, you know... Again, in the interest of full disclosure, I always like to say this. You endorsed to beat, him. Yes, to beat Becky to the punch, I did endorse Governor Walls in, in, in the election. All right. Uh, so we'll get back to whether you also endorse his budget. Uh, keep going. Talk about more. <laughs> I want to give you more, more, of, the, yeah, let's more, hear more of the about the budget, more of the platform. You know, so I will give some credit here. There are tax cuts. Credit to who? Uh, credit to Governor Walls. I just wanted to get that in. Yep. Yep. Um, so there are some tax credits in here, uh, tax cuts, uh, Social Security tax cuts, which uh, I believe that just uh, today – the, the Senate voted on Social Security, eliminating the Social Security tax. No Democrats in the Senate voted for it. Um, Which they campaigned on. Correct. So, uh, shocker, politicians lie. Um, but there is also child care credit, child tax credit. Um, there are a number of things. Um, however, I, I, let me see if I can find this here. The governor did say that um, he is getting, you know, going to be basically returning $10,000 in, in his tax cuts. And his, and his walls check, which we can come back to, giving $10,000 back to the average family. Now, if you look at the buy, or if, you, if we look at the surplus that we have and do a little math of an almost 18 billion surplus and 6 million individuals, I mean, he's basically, that's $3,000 that each individual in the state of Minnesota was overtaxed. So come on here. I mean, he's just trying to give us our own money back and, and take credit for it. This is the uh, two, two, two thoughts, and I'll have here very quickly. Consequence, elections have consequences, and it's also easier to gov- govern in a budget surplus. Um, and this is a record surplus. Um, and so I think it's pretty difficult for him or a- any administration to come up with a budget in this context where there's such a buffer with rainy day. I mean, there's such a buffer with the surplus, excuse me, that it's difficult to get it wrong in, in, in the rear sense. Uh, he's got a trifecta with the DFL legislature. Um, and so there's going to be, I mean, this, what he is proposing will not probably be the final. I mean, there will be some negotiating and some legislative back and forth. Do you think his proposal comes with the, the you know, the first election up is the House of Representatives 2024. Do you think that House Democrats will be unified to support his budget? Well, do you think they'll vote for it in lockstep? I don't know. I mean, I think there's going to have to be a lot of work on it to, to get all of them on board. It, it's just, it's a lot of spending in different areas. It's a lot of, there's some one-time spending. There's some, you know, things that are going to be, you know, put into to future budgets as well. Um, but no, everybody's going to see a tax hike in this. And, and that's something that, um, you know, Minnesotans will if we have anything to do with it, right? Minnesotans will be well aware of that come 2024 is that they saw a tax hike. There was a line in the Star Tribune article over the weekend that said, the DFL governor is proposing new taxes and increased fees that would fall on Minnesotans who earn paychecks, shop in the seven-county Twin Cities metro area, buy fishing permits, own passenger vehicles, and those who sell self um, sell assets worth more than $500,000. So you live, work, or breathe in the seven-county metro in particular – you're going to have to pay more. And this is at a time when inflation is up, you know, gas prices are up. We're already paying more. And now you're going to be paying more to register your car. You're going to be paying more to fish. You're going to be paying more out of your paycheck. I mean, where does it end? Do you, what's, what's your expectation on Republican or legislative opposition to this? I mean, in my experience working at the state legislature, a fee is a tax, and there's a lot of increases in fees and taxes here. And uh, I find it hard to believe that many, if any, Republicans are going to vote for any sort of thing that can be thought of and, and said as a tax hike. I would agree. I mean, I think that's those, any of that type of stuff is going to be problematic. So for somebody who endorsed Governor Walls, do you endorse his budget? 
The, look, elections have consequences, and and uh, there's not every, not every aspect of it do I agree with. Uh, but I think that uh, he's in a position where he gets that. He, that's I think I think it is legitimately a starting point for budget negotiations. I think the House will have input. I think the Senate will have input. They are of one party now, which is interesting. And so I think what will be interesting to watch is is the governor's not up for four years. We don't know if he's running for reelection or what's going on, but. The first, the, first, the first political entity that will, if, if let's, say the wall, let's say that the budget is too much and there's, a, there's, a, there's an outrage from the taxpayer on this, um, the first people that would impact would be, legis- would be House, and, and House Democrats and House Republicans next, next election cycle. So the earliest there will be, I think, political retaliation or political retribution or political backlash on this will be in, in the polls in, in two years. And I just don't know um, if that's realistic to expect that. I mean, you're going to have to have a sustained message. I think what's interesting, this legislative session, and we've talked about, we talked about this a little bit with uh, Representative Stevenson on our last show, and we brought it up with Representative Garofalo too, is the speed of this session. I'm wondering if they're doing so much on the front end to get some time between the next election um, because I think a lot of people are commenting on the speed of this legislative session, that Democrats are moving with incredible speed. And this is a very robust agenda that he has. Uh, I, I think that would be a fair way to describe it. And again, as someone who endorsed him, I don't agree with everything mm-hmm. that's in the budget, but he's certainly not holding back. And so I'm wondering if, if one of the strategies that House Democrats have engaged with, it would be good to ask one of them, uh, it, it, uh, when we have another legislator on soon, is to talk about if they're pushing some of this stuff so aggressively on the front end, so that gives time between now and the election cycle for them to message on the positive stuff that they've done and hope that the the less positive stuff gets forgotten on. Is that fair to say? I think absolutely. If we've learned anything, I know you've worked in politics enough to know that the the voter's memory is very short. I mean, just think of what was going on two years before the 22 election um, was COVID and and riots and the burning of our city. And none of that was, you know, a factor when it came to the 2022 election as as all of the people, you know, involved in a lot of those things that outraged Minnesotans mid-2020 um, just weren't a factor in their voting styles in 2022. So I agree. If they do a lot of this now, um, people will forget about it. And, you know, with these Governor Walls checks, he wants to give somewhere between $1,000 and $2,600 back to individuals. Um, this is our money he wants to give back. But he wants to take credit for it, right? So when you're voting or, or you're in a year when you're, you know, a couple months down the line after this, if this were to get passed, you'd say, well, thank you, Governor Walls. I, I, I'm so grateful for this $1,600 check that I got from you when in reality it's because Minnesotans are overtaxed. Yes, and I think that that's going to be – that will be a good discussion to have on the campaign show. I think we're previewing – what I think legislative, the legislative races are going to be like, I think you're going to hear that debate. I do think you're going to hear, you're going to hear talk of Minnesotans being overtaxed. Um, and I wonder if, if there are Democratic seats that won by close margins, that if, if, the, if what, what, what the unity is going to be for this piece of legislation. I mean, I'm wondering if the reaction from House Democrats and House legislature and, and in the Senate, although they're, not, although they're not up for four years, with specifically about the House if they're going to be able to put all their votes about it. Are there, is there going to be a one Minnesota approach and everyone's going to be voting for this legislation, particularly the, the, the components of the bill? Um, that would require a, a House member to, to package it all up and present it as the governor's alternative. Um, there's some, there's some, back in, some gamesmanship that happens in that, but it would be very curious to see uh, how unified Democrats are. Because, again, this is the starting point. The governor's office offers the budget, uh, it's a starting point. I don't think there's an expectation when there were Democrat, when there were Republican governors or an independent governor or, a, or previous Democratic governors that everything that the governor proposes becomes law and is passed in its purest sense. The question will be, how much support does the governor have 
with legislative Democrats to get his budget passed? And where does it change? And I have two comments on that. One, um, I think that it would be something that the governor's office or, or leadership in the House will likely work with some of those, you know, Democrats who won by very minuscule margins and say, you know, what is it going to take? Or, or, you know, can we get you a, a specific win? You know, kind of some of that jockeying that goes on so that they are able to go back and, and stand up for this or to give them a pass and say, we have enough votes, you can vote no on this. So you don't have to have this challenge in, in two years. So I think we will see a little bit of that. Um, and my other thought, just completely out in one ear, out the other. And the margins, to your point about letting people off, one vote in the Senate and uh, three or four in the House. Right. So there's not a lot of wiggle room. And it, 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 so there's not a lot of opportunity for Democrats. And they've been very united so far. I mean, there's not, I mean, there have been, they have ushered through on their agenda, which I didn't endorse all of their agenda, <laughs> but their agenda has been quite aggressive. They've moved quickly. And so the question is, is what's the support in the legislature to get this done? Will we, will we, will we be seeing alternative proposals? One of the things that used to happen at the, that is that when, when Republicans were in the minority in the Senate, it was the Senate Democrats that were, off, they were providing, they were offering up Palenti's budget, for example. Larry Pogamolo used to always do that as a little gotcha game mm-hmm. um, because Republicans weren't interested in carrying that because it wasn't going to pass. And so Polka Miller would do that, in essence, to, to get some points on showing how unpopular Governor Pawlenty's budget was by making Republicans vote up and down in it. I do wonder what we're going to see out of the Democrats when this, this, this plan comes down to the, on the floor. It'll be interesting to watch the debate. And I, I found my one last comment, <laughs> and, and that is, it's going to be very interesting because in some capacity, this budget is going to grow, right? It is going to be bigger than it was in the last budget. Um, it's right now a $13 billion increase that's proposed. I believe it's going to be, whether it's just a couple billion, it is going to be larger than the last biennium. Um, but one thing that I think we, let's put a pin in and wait and see what things look like next summer as we head into the next election cycle, um, is whether Republicans can capitalize on that. I don't expect a lot of the other prices to be going down in the next year, the price of eggs, the price of gas, the price of everything. So let's see if Republicans, you know, hopefully I'm going to hopefully, you know, see if we can be a part of, you know, reminding Minnesotans to capitalize on this message that um, Democrats did are the reason that they are paying more in every aspect of their life. So wait and see. Great catch. Well, I can assure you that here on the Broadcord Report, uh, we will keep you abreast as to what's happening with the budget as things change and as things are altered. We'd like to welcome this week's guest on the Broadcord Report, Representative Harry Niska from the freshman class, joining 22 other new members. And he's the first time state representative and attorney from Ramsey. Welcome, Harry. Welcome. Thank you for having me here on the Ellery Report. I'm excited to be here. Well, that's oh, great. that's very interesting. I know it's a very... Was that worked off online? Hey, I had nothing to do with that one. Now, just well, in, the, in, in the interest of disclosure, Representative, uh, there is a name change in the works, and I've been an advocate from the beginning to there being some level of that. So, so please stand by for updates. I, I, I appreciate that. I do. I, I did actually listen to a, a, another episode where you addressed that particular thing. So I, 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 I'm not uh, I'm not trying to be too hard on you. There is, however, I believe only one of you who has uh, parents who live in my district. And so, you know, I think uh, that that's that's definitely a, a big part of it. But no, I, in all seriousness, I do appreciate the opportunity to be here and to you know, reach across party lines and talk to both <laughs> Jensen and Wallace supporters <laughs> about the future of the state. So well, right I, out the gate. Right wow, out the gate. Swing. Well, Representative, uh, thank you so much for, for your this opportunity to meet with a group of uh, a mixed minded uh, political identities. So thank you so much for your patience and, and work. This is this. We're off to a great start. Becky, over I, to you. I love it. Uh, well, full disclosure on my end, um, Representative Niska is the husband of one of my best friends. Um, I've known uh, Harry and his wife for now 12, 13 years. Um, great, great friends. Um, and they do. My, my parents live less than a five-minute walk from them. So uh, keeping it in the neighborhood up there and um, really excited for you. So couldn't happen to a better person. We're excited. We've talked a lot about um, over the last uh, couple of months here on the podcast about 
message discipline and, and needing good messengers in, in the Republican Party. And I can think of no one better than uh, than you to be a good voice for Republicans in the legislature. So um, with that, I mean, not saying that I'm biased at all towards towards Mr. Representative Niska here, um, but I do want to kick it off. And as a member of a big freshman class, you know, get a little feedback from you. Obviously, you're no stranger to the political world. You have been active. You've been involved. You've been informed. You know the ongoings of the legislative session, but maybe speak a little bit to being on that side of the desk and and uh, what's you know the inside scoop of, of this DFL trifecta up there. Yeah, well, um, thank you for the question. And I actually, I think I first met both of you very close in time, around the same time. I remember having um, lunch with Michael in, uh, it, I think, early 2010 to talk, uh, um, which would have been right around the time that that uh, Becky you and I first got to know each other when yeah. you were working on the Emmer campaign and Michael was deputy chair of the of the state party. Um, yeah, this is a very different uh, experience as we were talking about before we got on on the call. Uh, you know, people start to talk, refer to you with formal titles that feel very strange to me, um, and I do have to think a lot more about. Uh, not just uh, the stuff that I find really interesting, which is kind of digging into the mechanics of legislation and trying to figure out what the unintended consequences are of, you know, well-intentioned or less well-intentioned uh, proposals, but also thinking about um, what you're talking about in terms of uh, messaging and how we can um, make the case to the people of Minnesota. And, you know, to me, um, the experience I've had is that, you um, uh, being a, a freshman member of the minority in a trifecta is that mostly we're um, along for the ride. We're given uh, very little notice about a, a sort of a blizzard of, uh, in my opinion, pretty unwise and extreme uh, policy changes that are that uh, the majority and the governor seem to want to all you know enact on uh, the state of Minnesota all. Um, at once, it, we do have a constitutional limit on how many legislative days we can get in, and uh, and it seems like that the, there's uh, and you know a very um, well uh, sort of well tactically planned out, um, but not very necessarily thought through in terms of the substance of the the changes that are being uh, implemented all at once, or it seems like on the state of Minnesota, and with, I think, a, an idea towards um, just things happening, and then the people of Minnesota will find out what was in the bill after we passed it, um, in the infamous words of and Nancy Pelosi about Obamacare. Yeah, you know, and it should be noted, I don't know if we mentioned so far, um, but you are an attorney, so you have a little bit of a different viewing a lot of this with different eyes and and how the law and the legal um system you know takes in to to laws being created at the legislature um one thing you chatted a little bit about is kind of um maybe being left out of the conversation um i do want to ask you we had uh representative stevenson on last week um and he said you know he mentioned that um about about how whether while they we they don't necessarily need GOP votes, um, they are working collaboratively, working with the Republicans to find solutions that work for both parties. Um, while doesn't need GOP votes, the policy is better working across the aisle. And so, I mean, can you speak a little bit to more to that? Um, not necessarily having to respond directly to Representative Stevenson, but go a little bit further into um, Democrats whether they are. If you are working with any of them, if you do feel, you know, kind of let in on the conversation or if you're sitting, you know, over at, at the kids table and, and just being patted on the head and along for the ride. Yeah, I, I, I did listen to your uh, to your um, interview with my neighbor, uh, Representative Stevenson. We served together on the Commerce Committee and, you know, it's a it's definitely um, there are uh, a, a few issues where um, you know things cut across party lines, things are are less controversial. Um, for the big ticket items, the uh, there definitely is a not just an approach of we don't need their votes, but um, we don't really need um, any of their ideas uh, to make our um, you know our things work better. I mean, we can get into some of the substance. I definitely don't think that the people of Minnesota. Um, 
thought they were uh, getting what they are currently getting. I think there was, uh, you know, in my mind, a, a little bit of a bait and switch played on the people of Minnesota on a lot of issues, especially, I think, on um, the way that um, Democrats spent and their affiliated groups spent millions of dollars defining the Republican Party as uh, extreme and irresponsible, um, and, and especially on the issue of abortion. I mean, that's the, the biggest thing. Uh, Governor Walls, uh, multiple times before the election, uh, called it a lie to say that he supported, um, you know, abortion up until birth with no restrictions. And now it's the third bill that they that he's signed into law today. Um, as we're recording this, he, 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 that, that's the, the third bill he's signed into law is, um, you know, abortion with no restrictions and every um Every uh, proposal to try to moderate that, um, including one that I offered on the House floor, uh, was voted down on almost party lines. I think um, there was one there's one Democrat uh, who voted uh, with us on on that bill. Uh, um, and then there was one amendment where a couple of additional Democrats, uh, I think, sort of maybe strategically um, crossed party lines. But in the Senate, it was a straight party line vote. Um, we just last Thursday debated until almost midnight, a seven and a, a seven and a half hour debate about reorganizing the, the ener entire energy sector in the state of Minnesota, um, trying to create the most aggressive, uh, basically solar and wind, 100 percent, so almost 100 percent solar and wind energy by uh, 2040. Um, that was only allowed to be heard in one committee before it came to the floor. Um, Republicans tried to have more than one committee hearing on that uh, bill and Democrats again on party lines rejected it. We offered over 30 um, amendments on the floor, um, in a reasonable things talking about, uh, for example, saying we can have, um, if we're gonna have this goal, we can have uh, use uh, new nuclear technology to get it done. There's a, a lot of new uh, nuclear technology that Minnesota law doesn't allow the Public Utilities Commission to even consider. Um, Things like carbon capture, things like mining in Minnesota, in order to uh, in order to get the minerals that we need to uh, support electrification, and, you know, copper, nickel, those types of things that we need in order to have a real energy transition. All of those things were voted down on a straight party line vote. And so, um, are there instances where um, there are issues that do cut across party lines, like tax conformity and things like that? Yes, um, but uh, on so much of the agenda that I, including things that I think the Democrats were um, not really very open and honest about their agenda on before the election, um, it is a sort of one party Minnesota approach more than a one Minnesota approach um, in the way that things are being um, run around here. The other piece of it that is really pretty alarming is just the pace at which in the process that's being followed. I mean, I kind of got into this with the energy thing, but, um, you know, the, the speaker uh, was bragging about the, the data after the fourth week of session in terms of how much they have pushed through committees. And over and over again, we're hearing two or three bills, including major pieces of legislation in one committee hearing and voting them out, uh, you know, just pushing, pushing, pushing this stuff through. And the numbers, I think, tell a pretty um, stark story. Um, after the fourth week of session this year, we have had 100 committee reports, which is bills that are passed out of a committee. Um, there's a chart that the that Speaker Hortman put out um, where that that's lined up with 2009, 2011, 13, 15, 17, 19, and 2021. The previous high was 2017, which was 37 at this point. So a third. And even that was an out, a huge outlier compared to all the other ones. It was that that's double any other year. So right now, aside from the one outlier year, we're basically five times as many bills have been forced through um, committee hearings. And these aren't, you know, these aren't the things that uh, have just gotten, you know, everyone agrees on and things are, that have just gotten hung up in committee. These are huge controversial pieces of legislation that, um, you know, sometimes are being doubled and tripled up in committee and then just forced through without a lot of time for us to look at them, without a lot of time for uh, test testifiers to look at them. Um, and then, you know, 
they'll get pushed to the floor and, you know, we'll debate them for a while. Sometimes we'll offer amendments. And if, you know, the pattern holds, uh, those things are going to just get voted down in party line, um, party line votes. So uh, what we're getting uh, and, and what it looks like we're going to get for the next few months, I think is very different than what Democrats were, or than what Minnesota voters were sold by, uh, by Democrats. Um, and, you know, frankly, Michael, it's different than what I think you were sold by the governor um, before, uh, before the election. Harry, to, uh, Representative Niska, to, to that point for a second. Um, one thing that Becky and I discussed uh, prior in, in this podcast was the speed in which the legislature is moving. Do you think they're moving at such a fast pace because they want to put as much distance as possible between themselves and the election? by getting a lot of this stuff done, or is it about efficiency? Well, um, you can do a lot of stuff. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I'm not sure that I can uh, read their minds. I think that it's more about um, trying to get as many of the items on their wish list done as they can in 120 legislative days. Um, I mean, there's already there was already talk. There's already been talk about a special session just for purposes of getting as many items off of the progressive wish list as possible. So um, uh, this is, uh, I think, about getting from here to whatever direction the, um, you know, the activists in the DFL party want to get to as fast as possible. And, um, you know, I I thought some of the comments that. the, the ways that Representative Stevenson and the Speaker have um, justified this pace are a little interesting. You know, they talk about how um, Minnesotans were fed up with gridlock. Well, you know, before COVID, we were all fed up with traffic jams too, but that didn't mean it was a good idea once the roads were clear to drive 120 miles an hour um, either. And frankly, I think that the pace that they're doing, a lot of this hu- these huge changes um, is, is reckless. I talked about um, this on the on the floor of the uh, um, in the energy debate, that um, to try to just basically jump off a cliff um, and hope that the technology is there in 2040, while we're kind of tying our hands on the technology that probably would help us get there, um, is really reckless and it's going to have significant costs that um, outweigh the benefits of uh, whatever this is. I asked, you know, Representative Long, the majority leader, the sponsor of the legislation, uh, what the actual benefit, concrete benefits are of passing this bill compared to not passing the bill. Um, and he really couldn't quantify them. The center of the American experiment says it's, you know, a global reduction in temperatures by a, a thousandth of a degree Celsius. If you compare the scenario in which we continue to transition um, and reduce our carbon emissions as we're doing now versus if we try to do it using the government mandates um, without, you know, nuclear power that they're trying to do. Um, so it's, it's really just kind of an amorphous benefit for a really significant, I think, concrete cost. Um, North Dakota is threatening to sue us. I, I said on the House floor, I think North Dakota is going to win that lawsuit. I offered an amendment to try to um, insulate us from that lawsuit by saying that our uh, po- energy policy is not going to reach out across state lines into North Dakota. Um, just like a lot of the amendments we introduced, that was also voted down in party lines. So, um, you know, the, the process is concerning, but I think the process is resulting in really kind of reckless um, substance that we're doing uh, as well. And that's um, that's what's obviously going to be a lot worse. You made reference to the governor signing the PRO Act today. Um, and you offered uh, some debates on the House floor related to it. In practical terms, how does what changes today because of the passage of the PRO Act uh, in terms of existing? We heard about it a lot during the election cycle uh, that Minnesotans had a constitutional right uh, recognized through the courts on abortion. How does the PRO Act change or expand uh, abortion in this state? Well, the, the PRO Act establishes a state law that there's a fundamental right to reproductive health care, including um, to abortion. Um, and it has nothing in it that qualifies that fundamental right at all. And so and, and that and by the way, we can get into this, I suppose. But that um, 
fundamental right to reproductive health care includes a lot of things other than abortion that I don't think that the, the implications of were really fully um, thought through. But, you know, there's a difference between a court saying that we have a fundamental right to something and then they kind of weigh other interests against it. Uh, there's a difference between that and the, and the legislature just passing a statute saying we have a fundamental right to this thing without any of those other countervailing interests being acknowledged or um, any sort of articulated scheme that restrict that that you know balances other interests with that fundamental right and so that's what a lot of our amendments tried to do was to introduce some of those um, uh, countervailing um, uh, considerations I, my, the amendment I, I put forward for example just took two sentences from Roe versus Wade itself the, uh, the majority opinion written by Harry Blackman that acknowledged the state's interest in uh, health regulation, as well as the state's interest in potential life. Um, that's not where I personally would strike the balance in terms of um, in terms of those countervailing um, interests. But even acknowledging that interest was um, was not allowed. It was it was was you know stripped out of that uh, that amendment after they deleted any reference to potential life. I ended up withdrawing that amendment. Um, in terms of exactly what is the current state of the law, I mean, part of the problem here is that uh, that's unclear right now in Minnesota. And part of the reason why that's unclear is that a district court judge in Ramsey County enjoined some provisions of Minnesota state law. And then the attorney general and the plaintiffs in that lawsuit have done everything they can to try to prevent any other judge other than the one district court judge in Ramsey County from having any review of that um, of that opinion. And so uh, it is a little I mean, I, the, the answer to your question is unclear as to what exactly is the current state of the law in Minnesota. There are statutes on the books, some of which I think are pretty reasonable um, that the DFL is now, you know, following up on the PRO Act with another piece of legislation coming through. Um, to try to repeal a lot of those things, including, I mean, most strikingly, trying to repeal the references in our statutes, which were passed just a few years ago by um, uh, uh, by bipartisan majorities to ensure that um, if there's a botched abortion and a baby is literally born alive, that there's an obligation um, to care for that um, that baby that it's now, you know, sort of no longer uh in their mother, there's no longer any sort of forced birth uh, argument or anything like that. It's a, you know a person um, outside, a separate person outside of their mother's womb. Um, that there's uh, and uh, part of this this other bill that is moving through the legislature still is to to repeal you know provisions like that. Which um, I guess we'll see what happens. I haven't seen any indication that 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 uh, train is going to stop either. Um, where does, I mean, you're, you're pro-life and you're a pro-life legislator and, and, and uh, uh, pro-life is a, is a, is a very strong movement inside the party. Um, where does the pro-life movement go forward in, in, in this state, particularly in regards to Republican politics and is, and can a Republican candidate that's pro-life get elected statewide? Well, that's a, that's a big question. Obviously it's, um, you know, Republican candidates that are pro-life have been elected statewide um, as you know, the last time a Republican was elected statewide, he was uh, he was pro-life. But um, I think the bigger question is what's it going to take for a Republican to get elected statewide? I, I, I'm not sure um, how uh, I guess it depends on how you define uh, how you define pro-life exactly. Um, I do believe that a, a pro-life candidate can get can get elected statewide in Minnesota. Um, where the pro-life movement goes from here, I think, is um, going to be largely defined by the legal landscape that um, that we end up with in the next few months. I I, I don't think that um, you know just in terms of pure electoral politics. Uh, I don't think that the, the DFL has, has shifted the landscape in favor of their position. I think, if anything, uh, the DFL has, uh, and, and by doing what they've done, they have sharpened, I think, what would have been a, the, the, the winning message for Republicans on this position um, in the last election, which would have been to point out how far out of step of most Minnesotans, you know, 
middle of the road views uh, on abortion, the actual DFL uh, candidates and politicians are on the issue. I think there's a reason why Governor Walls repeatedly referred to Scott Jensen's claim that he supported abortion up to the point of birth as a lie. And, um, you know, there, there's that's well documented. It's there's multiple sort of fact check articles before the election in which their campaign uh, the Walls campaign referred to um, claims that they take the position that he took today um, was a lie. I think that's out of step with the, the people of Minnesota. And so just stepping back and looking at it from a purely uh, political standpoint, um, I, I don't think that the that the um, what the DFL has done on, on abortion has made it harder for Republicans, political, you know, pro-life Republican candidates in the state. I think it has. Uh, sort of expanded the playing field for them. It's expanded the number of voters who might now listen to Republicans and say, okay, well, um, uh, maybe I don't agree with where you would want to take the state, but given, you know, if you were to uh, succeed in, in, in getting where you want to go politically, but um, you're sort of directionally in the right direction from where we are um, as a state. You hinted to this a little bit. I just want to be clear. Do you expect there to be some legal challenges from the PRO Act? Do you expect uh, this to, to be fought in some way in the courts or something? Um, I, no, I, I mean, in terms of somebody, uh, a private plaintiff or something saying that the PRO Act violates the federal constitution, um, I'm not sure on... Uh, I haven't I haven't come up with that uh, that idea. I wasn't uh, that that's not the direction I was going with it. Okay. Um, I yeah. All right. I just was curious because I mean you know this is yeah I, I see your point. I mean to your point, I think what you're making is is that if the if the Democrats believed that this is where the state was on abortion, what the policy was, they would have campaigned on it, and largely they did not campaign on this level of, of access to abortion. Is in essence what you're saying? Yeah, I think I think there was I think it was essentially a bait and switch in the election about you know they made it seem like the issue was about whether Republicans were willing to accept um, you know exceptions for rape and incest and and life and health of the mother, um, and when Republicans put that question to Democrats in as part of this debate, Democrats said no, we don't. That's not where we thought the line was at all. We thought the line was. Um, that uh, uh, entirely, uh, you know, frankly, anarchist on uh, uh, position on on this issue altogether. That there should be um, no government regulations, uh, no uh, no state interest at all in the life of uh, you know separate developing human being. Um, that there should be um, no uh, concern about whether um, abortions were being done to. Um, eradicate disabled people or to, or, you know, based on race or sex selection. Um, and that, uh, you know, we can't even include in our abortion laws uh, any reference to any countervailing interest um, whatsoever. You know, it's um, it, the, or, or any uh, particular regulation of um, the places, the businesses that are engaged in um, providing uh abortion services. It's really, I mean, it's, it's really very disorienting looking at the way that they want to interpose the government into every other uh, private relationship and business relationship. But for this one particular industry, um, you know, I think libertarian isn't even a strong enough word. It's like a completely um, almost anarchist philosophical position um, as it relates to this one particular issue. Um, and then all the regulation, all the taxes, everything, uh, 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 you know, in every other aspect of life. Well, we certainly, you know, the first month of session here, we've certainly seen you um, stand on the House floor, participate in debate, be a loud, loud vocal voice um, pushing back on some of these, uh, you know, extreme policies that we we have seen from Democrats. Um, and like, likely we'll continue to see. Um, I want to be mindful of our time here. Um, we're super grateful that you were able to join us. Um, if there's just any last uh, pitch you have, any last comments on 
you know, your first session here, what we should expect to come and in the last uh, couple months here of session and um, your hope for for Republicans, you know, participating in this debate and and maybe being a roadblock to some of the, you know, potential extremism coming forward. Yeah, I mean, I, I just hope that people are um, are paying attention. There's a lot um, there's a lot uh, coming down the pike. I think the state of Minnesota is going to be uh, very different in a year and a half. Um, and, and frankly, um, I think a less uh, competitive state for uh, businesses. It's going to be a less attractive uh, state for those who want to start businesses or invest in businesses or um, you know who just want to be able to enjoy the state of Minnesota. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really concerned about the future of our state. Um, I, I'm, I'm worried about whether uh, we're gonna, you know, we didn't even talk about public safety or education. I'm really concerned about whether uh, we're gonna address those um, in a meaningful way. Uh, you know, we'll spend a lot, of, a lot more money on, on education. I'm not sure that we're gonna do anything um, that's gonna meaningfully um, focus on, uh, on improving student achievement. I'm really concerned about whether we're going to do anything, uh, be able to do anything meaningful on public safety. That's something where I would hope we should be able to find um, some common ground. Uh, it's something that I think the people of Minnesota were really concerned about um, and, and frankly agreed with Republicans on more than Democrats. Um, and, and uh, you know, by a slim majority, they chose Democrats to to run the state. And um, I, I, I think uh, it's very important that people pay attention to what's going on. Um, and I, I, I sure hope that uh, as a as a party, we can get things together in a way that allows us to, um, you know, win the house back, win the state house back in, in two years and at least um, have one foothold to try to um, bring a little bit more balance in the state. So we don't um, we don't end up like uh, you know, Illinois or California or, um, you know, some of the other states that that are also similarly, I think, uh, struggling right now in terms of um, being able to keep and attract uh, new people to come to their state and have right. well, here, here I'm going to jump in here and it's been having you on the show today. So Harry Niska, first time state rep and attorney from Ramsey. Thanks so much for joining us on the Broadcorp Report. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thanks, Harry. It was great to have uh, Representative Niska on the Allery Report. Uh, that was great <laughs> to have. Uh, it was great work. Uh, I Becky, your I thought. Promise I, I promise I didn't pay him to say that. That was that was all on him. You That's know, right. like I said, Harry, I think is um, Representative Niska. It's, it's going to take me a little bit to get used to that. Um, you know, he is somebody that I think is is a good, articulate voice for the Republican Party. Now, do we agree on every issue? I think I've said before, abortion even being one of them. We might not necessarily see eye to eye, but in this debate, you know, if you haven't seen it, you go follow him. We didn't ask for his Twitter handle, but he um, has tweeted some of his floor debate and, you know, he makes some good arguments trying to just uh, tone down some of the extremism that the DFL was, has been trying to push, you know, abortion even being one of them being pro-choice, they do kind of take it a little far and, and Harry really did try on the house floor to kind of rein it in and just put some of those words from Roe versus Wade itself into this Minnesota statute and and was denied that uh, by House Democrats. So, you know, uh, I think he is going to, I'm excited to see more from him. He is a smart, articulate um, guy that is going to be reading the bills, having good debate, you know, understands the, the inner workings of, of the law. And I think we'll, we'll be seeing a lot and hearing a lot more from him. I think he's uh, incredibly thoughtful and, and, uh, uh, and, and I think there's a lot to come from him. I think it's good to see someone like him in the legislature. He's a Republican that I think has tremendous appeal, uh, not just in his local legislative district, but potentially statewide. Uh, he's the type of Republican that I think a lot of other Republicans want to cheer for and get excited about. I know there was not a lot that Republicans felt good about on election night, particularly in Minnesota, but the election of Representative Harry Niska to the legislature is good for it's good for republicans it's good for his legislative district it's good for the state 
and it's good for the future that we have here. And it's good to see someone like that get an election certificate. Aside Our- <laughs> from your comments about the name of the show, all aside. <laughs> so this has been another great show of the Broadcorb Report. And, you know, looking at future weeks, we'd love to hear from you as to maybe some of the guests that you'd like to see us have on the show or any topics that you would like us to uh, address as well. So if you can reach out to Becky at... Go ahead, Becky. Allery RL on Twitter. And Michael. I'm at M Broadcorp on Twitter. All right. If you don't follow uh, either one of these guys, you're missing out. They both have been very active and have been sharing a lot of different thoughts. But let's talk about the tweet of the week. What about the two of you here? What have you seen that's come across that's been of interest? Um, This is potentially my favorite tweet of the week. Um, I sent out a tweet talking about... um, um, the, the 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 Jensen Berg campaign and how reckless they were about the subject of abortion that they're partially to blame for the state of where we're in right now and discussing the issue and and a, and someone responded at at GOP, GOP princess said I cannot overstate how much I hate agreeing with Broadcorp here it takes guts to run statewide campaign but everything about Jensen Berg was DOA from the moment the campaign was announced. Impacts are profoundly tragic. We're in for so much pain for two years minimum. Again, my emphasis is I cannot overstate how much I hate agreeing with Adam with with Broadcorp here. So that's the reason why that's the tweet of the week. <laughs> I love it, Becky. What about yours? Yeah, you know, mine is a uh, maybe a little bit more on the serious side of things. Um, you know, I think on this podcast we've we've tried to you know keep show how people on different sides of the aisle can have good conversations. And um, Senator Lindsey Port had tweeted, as a woman in politics, I'm no stranger to people sending me their unsavory opinions, went on to some of the horrific things that she's gotten, stating that they're from um, pro-life people. Senator Jim Abler responded with that being very sad to hear, nobody should be threatened like that. Um, and going on to say how, you know, folks that he knows in the pro-life world um, are, are very loving, peaceful people. And, and just saying, you know, I hope, Senator, you're able to meet some of the good pro-lifers. And then um, a gentleman by the name of Infrasonic Dan, this has since been deleted. So remember, the Internet's forever. And, and I grabbed the screenshot before it was deleted, said, God, F you. Well, he didn't say F you. He wrote out the words. F you, Jim. I grew up with those people, and you're all the exact same. Fake Christian trash humans join the club. So, you know, Oof. I just, wow. I, I understand abortion is a very sensitive topic. I just wanted to highlight that to, again, highlight the, the poor side of politics that can be, you know, people saying awful things to a DFL member, people saying awful things to a Republican member, and just kind of, you know, let's, let's try to do better. Let's be nice. Let's have conversations with people that disagree with us. Be respectful, be articulate, and um, be able to have those conversations, I, as I hope people know we're having here on the Broadcorp Report, um, with people that might not be on our same side of things, but do so in a respectful manner. So just your lesson for the Absolutely day. agree. Well said, Becky. Well, now remember, if you are listening to our show, we'd certainly appreciate you going out to wherever you hear your podcast and giving us a thumbs up. We've appreciated uh, many thumbs up so far on the show. And we will be bringing you more shows here on the Broadcorp Report. So signing off, this is Todd Walker, the moderator of the show, starring Becky Allery and Michael Broadcorp.